1874, in Paris, 30 artists hold their first exhibition, calling themselves the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors, Printmakers, etc. Artists like Monet, Degas, Renoir, etc. Have you heard this story about how the Impressionists got their name? A critic goes to see the show, and ten days later publishes this bizarre satirical article where he walks around the show with the so-called real artist, making fun of it. Looking at one Monet painting, he writes, Aha! Isn't that brilliant enough now? There's impression, or I don't know what it means. Seen another Monet, he looks at the title, Impression, Sunrise, and writes, Impression. I was certain of it. I was just telling myself that since I was impressed, there had to be some impression in it. And what freedom, what ease of workmanship. Wallpaper in its embryonic state is more finished than that seascape. The reviews for the second Impressionist exhibition are arguably worse. A, quote, cruel spectacle, one critic writes, put on by five or six lunatics suffering from the madness of ambition. This is the beginning of one of art's great legends, right? How almost everyone thinks the Impressionists are terrible. And then, somehow, they become the most beloved artists in history. No one more so than the man who started it all, with his embryonic wallpaper of a seascape. Claude Monet is so poor when he's starting out that he once loses his bedsheets because he can't pay the laundry bill. And then, by 1912, he's making 369,000 francs a year from sales of his work. About $2 million today, when the average laborer in Paris makes 1,000. He has his estate. He has 100 paintings by other Impressionists and statues by Rodin. He has a fleet of cars in the garage, foie gras and truffles in the kitchen, wine and brandy in the cellar, four riverboats on the water, a chauffeur, a butler, a cook, and six gardeners. He is, in many ways, the artist-in-residence of the entire country of France, all because he has held so fast to his goals of studying color and light, right? Well, yes. And no. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the real story behind one of the great myths of Western culture, the triumph of Impressionism. Where's the line between making art and making money? And why do we want our artists to be so pure of heart and so empty of wallet? I'm Tim Gehring. Monet is one of those people who seems like he was always old and rich 
and famous. His younger years are a little blurry, like one of his paintings. And you picture him even at four with a belly and a beard. But he was a kid once, right? In the 1840s, in northern France, on the ocean. He just starts drawing, without thinking about money or foie gras or any of that. Monet insists on going to art school as a teenager, even though his dad really wants him to go into the family grocery business. At art school, he starts drawing pictures of the local townspeople. Caricatures, really. Guys with big heads and long noses. By the time he's 15, he's getting commissions. Quote, I got paid for the portraits, he would later write. In one month, my clientele doubled. Had I gone on like that, I'd be a millionaire today. So, maybe he is thinking about money a little bit. What happens, though, is he meets a guy named Eugène Baudin. It's 1858. Monet is 18, living in Paris, still making these caricatures. Baudin is 34, and also an artist, and he tells Monet to stop with the cartoons, come back to the sea, and paint. And so they go. They spend hours outside together, painting the ocean and the skies and the ships at port. Baudin is actually a pretty good painter. Not that it matters much. He's rich and he'll stay rich. He'll paint like this the rest of his life. Monet, though, is never the same. All he wants to do now is paint. Outside, if possible, where the light is and the color. He doesn't want anything to do with selling vegetables. But in 1861, when Monet is drafted into the army for a seven-year stint, his dad sees an opening. I'll buy your way out, he says. You won't have to ship out to some desert, shoot people for seven years, and get typhoid fever. If you just give up the art, what do you say? Monet says, no. Monet is, in fact, shipped off to the desert, Algeria. He spends most of his time there in a pair of red pantaloons taking care of horses. He draws caricatures again of the locals and his fellow soldiers, and whenever he can, he paints. The country is splendid, he writes, a place of, quote, constant sunshine and an eternally blue sky. He's completely immersed in the, quote, impressions of light and color. And then he gets typhoid, and after less than two years of his seven-year stint, he has to go home. His father lets him stay at home, by the coast, at least some of the time. But Monet has made his choice. It's art, or... Well, he can't think of anything else he'd rather do. Soon he's sending his paintings to the Salon in Paris. In the very first year, in 1865, he's accepted. The second year, too, he gets in. 
even though he didn't finish the painting he wanted to enter and has to send a backup. After that, though, as he's leaning into Impressionism, it's hit or miss. And after a couple years of not getting in, he stops entering. By the time of the first Impressionist shows, when the artists are being panned as lunatics, Monet is feeling the pressure to perform, most of it from himself. Monet had taken up with his model, Camille, and when she became pregnant, his father had offered him another deal. Leave Camille, or I'll cut off your funds entirely. More of a threat than a deal, really. And again, Monet said, no. And now, as he's getting into his 30s, more and more his letters to friends and associates come with a request. A few years ago, some wag went through Monet's letters and decided that the phrase most often found in them is some variation of send money. A hundred francs here, a couple hundred there. You'd think one of these people would be like, get a job, hippie. But no. They might moan and groan and stall. But eventually, more often than not, they send the money. Which is probably why, about a month later, he's asking again. Monet even asks people for money after he's basically yelled at them in the same letter. You f***ing screwed me over, you ass Oh, and please send money. It's painting or nothing for Monet. Ross King, the author of a recent book called Mad Enchantment about Monet's obsession with his water lilies, believes he sometimes exaggerates his poverty. He asks for money even after he's recently sold a painting for 800 francs, which is enough to rent a house for a year. In 1877, when he's about 37 years old, Monet writes a friend, If I don't come up with 600 francs by tomorrow night, my furniture and all I own will be sold and will be thrown into the street. Well, you could think of it like crowdsourcing like 19th century Kickstarter. He really believes in himself. Or, you could say, he's really full of himself. It's one of the great myths of the Impressionists, right? That they were willing to suffer for their unpopular art. And sometimes Monet does suffer. But he doesn't suffer willingly. That's why he asks for money. In 1870, France and Prussia go to war. Monet's good friend and fellow Impressionist Frederick Bazille dies in the fighting, and Monet wants even less to do with war than he does with vegetables. So, he goes to London. He paints the Thames and Hyde Park. And one day he's introduced to a fellow Frenchman, who's also fled the war. Paul Durand Ruel an art dealer who has come to London with his entire stock of paintings and rented a gallery. Monet is introduced by a fellow artist who tells Duran Ruel, this is Claude Monet. One day he will surpass us all. By the end of the year, Duran Ruel is putting a Monet picture in his first London exhibition. 
Not long after that, Monet is asking him for money. Duran Ruel quickly becomes Monet's best client, his primary dealer. He's also buying the work of other Impressionists. And within a year of meeting these guys, he buys 29 Pissarros, 29 Sicilies, 10 Degas, and two Renoirs. In one afternoon, he buys 23 works by Manet, everything Manet has. After the first Impressionist show was such a disaster, Duran Ruel is like, let me handle the next one. He has most of their paintings, after all. His gallery is in the heart of Paris, about three long blocks from the Louvre Museum. And so, in 1876, he fills three rooms of it with Impressionist art. This show goes just as badly as the first, right? One critic writes, Go ahead and try to explain to Renoir that a woman doesn't look like decomposing flesh. But at least the show looks good. It's hung well. There's even a brochure explaining what the hell it is, which is more than the artists themselves ever did. The new painting, the essay calls it. Modern, contemporary. Pictures of life as it is today. Which might interest you, you know, if you happen to be alive right now. But Dren Ruel is smart enough to know that not everyone likes the new. The old is comfortable, familiar. And so, at first when he shows the Impressionist work in his own galleries, he mixes it in with slightly older stuff. Paintings by Delacroix and Corot and Corbet. So that, by association, it already feels established. Like, see? This is okay. It's just paint, not decomposing flesh. Still, Impressionism is a hard sell. And by 1882, Monet is ready to throw in the towel. Maybe sell some f***ing vegetables. Duran Ruel has been advancing the money until the pictures start selling. But it's no way to make a living. And now, in his early 40s, Monet says, forget it. I'll give you some pictures to reimburse you. Maybe you can sell them someday. I'm tired of trying. He's starting dozens of pictures and finishing none of them. Of the pieces he has finished, he's destroying some of them, cutting them with a knife. He's ready to, quote, give it all up now, he writes Duran Ruel. Camille had died three years earlier, but Monet was already having an affair with their good friend Alice. And so, at the end of 1882, Monet and Alice pack up all of his unfinished paintings and all eight of their collective children and leave Paris behind. Within a year, the Impressionists, as a group, are starting to fall apart. Monet never liked big group exhibitions anyway, so he suggests they start having smaller shows. Duran Ruel says, why not a one-man show? This isn't something artists have usually done. It's the work that's important, the idea, not you. They were the anonymous society of artists, after all. But Monet's like, sure, 
okay. The invitations are sent out, opening on a Wednesday, February 28th, from 8 to 11 p.m. in Duran Ruel's new well-appointed gallery, just a few blocks from where the Impressionists had held their first show together nine years earlier. And now, here's Monet, the first to venture out on his own. In some ways, it's the first modern art show. And yet, this too doesn't go over well. The press mostly stays away. The buyers certainly do. Camille Passaro, Monet's friend and fellow impressionist, reports that the show is marvelous, but not making a penny at the door. Monet blames the, quote, fiasco of my exhibition on Duran Ruel. And the critics, who are each, he says, as stupid as the next. And then he goes looking for a new place to live. Someplace far out in the country, where he can live even more cheaply. In the spring of 1883, Monet gets on a train going north. And out of the window, about an hour outside Paris, he gets off and starts walking. Up the road from Vernon de Giverny, and over to a river and a house available for rent. Within a month, he moves in. The first person he sends his new address to is Duran Ruel. Monet has passed through this village all his life, whenever he went from Paris to home on the coast. But now, here he is, among the fruit trees and poppy fields, an outsider among the few hundred people who live in Giverny. He is, quote, enchanted. Monet starts painting the countryside, slowly at first. But by the end of the year, he's sending paintings to Duran Ruel, who's selling more and more of them. At some point, the dealer opens his family's apartment to the public, in addition to the gallery. Every Tuesday, the day the Musée de Luxembourg is closed. It's a nice home designed in the Louis XV style from more than a century earlier. Lavish and florid and traditional. And there in the salon, among the carved wood and the painted ceiling and the chandelier, he has family portraits by Renoir, a marble sculpture by Rodin. And at the end of 1883, Monet starts making six floral panels for the room. It's sort of like an Ikea store. Imagine yourself living like this. By the look, right? You could be at the sea on the beach. You could be at the cafe, strolling the boulevard, without ever leaving your house. The strategy is starting to work. Monet is making real money now, even if he's still harassing Duran Ruel for more of it. In 1886, the dealer makes plans to market the Impressionists somewhere entirely new. He packs up 300 works in 43 crates, including 40 paintings by Monet, and sails with them to New York. Monet can't see how this will turn out well. Now we're really stuck, he complains to Pissarro. There seems to be some kind of law that we must always be unlucky. 
In Manhattan, Duran Ruel hauls 43 crates of paintings to Madison Square and sets them up in a place called the American Art Galleries. He calls the show Works in Oil and Pastel by the Impressionists of Paris. And then he hits the road, traveling to Washington, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, visiting collectors, pitching Monet's paintings, even as Monet is harassing him to come home. In the end, he sells 49 pictures, about a third of what he came with. Monet, as usual, is unimpressed. He's been selling pictures, too, from his exhibitions in Paris, while his dealer has been away. And when Durand Ruel returns, Monet says he's found some new dealers and makes his first and best supporter come up with better terms. The world is changing, right? A new century is coming. And Monet is starting to feel that the tide is turning. And with it, his ship is finally coming in. Filled with money, if he has anything to do with it. Now, for some time, Monet has been intrigued by the stacks of hay the farmers around him leave in their fields. They show up in the background of his paintings at first. And then he begins to paint the larger mounds, sometimes called grain stacks, which are in fact corn. He puts them right in the center of the canvas, like a mountain or a monument. As a landscape painter, he's always traveled in search of new landscapes to paint, right? To the coast, to Italy, to England, to the point that Alice is like, hey, is this how it's going to be? that I'm not to see very much of you. And Monet is like, actually, but now that he's making money and he's 50 and not thin, he seems to have found a better way. I'll paint the same thing over and over. He paints the first grain stack in 1888. And then over the next three years, he makes about 30 more including the one from 1891 at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Each a little different from the last. You could say he's tracking the light, how it changes the look of things in the morning, in the evening, in the winter, in the summer. Or you could say he rolls out of bed, paints the thing he can see out his window, and sells the same picture to 30 different people. Two things can be true at the same time. For the next 10 years, this is what Monet does. The same subjects, always a little different. 24 paintings of poplar trees, 30 of the Rouen Cathedral. And then, of course, he creates the gardens at his home in Giverny and builds the bridge and plants the water lilies so that he never has to leave home at all. He paints the water lilies more than 250 times. By the turn of the century, the Impressionists are like a rock band, their works touring incessantly, raking in money wherever they go. In 1907, an exhibition of Impressionist paintings stops in seven cities in America, including the Minneapolis Society of Fine Arts and the Arts Guild of St. Paul. Duran Ruel is more like a band manager than a dealer now, trying to keep the schedule straight and 
everyone happy. At one point, he tells the director in Minneapolis that he'll have to wait because the pictures are already promised somewhere else. Everyone wants a piece of these guys. Even in the museums, almost everything is for sale. In one catalog to the show, viewers are invited to apply to the assistant secretary of the museum for prices and other information. By the 19-teens, Monet is ready to cement his legacy with a permanent installation of his water lily works in Paris. Two elliptical rooms, more than 300 feet of paintings. The Grand Decoration, he calls it. When an Abrajani oil magnate asks to buy some of the works, he refuses. When a group from the Art Institute of Chicago comes to see him and offers to buy 30 paintings for $3 million, he refuses. Monet has spent most of his life trying to make money. And now that he doesn't need any, people keep wanting him to take it. In 1921, a Rolls-Royce pulls up to the house in Giverny, and the former prime minister of France, Georges Clemenceau, gets out, along with a man named Matsukata from Japan, the son of a former prime minister, a friend of the emperor, and one of the richest men in the world. Matsukata picks out 17 paintings he'd like to buy for a museum he's planning called the Art Pavilion of Pure Pleasure. And then he notices one of the pieces Monet has made for the grand decoration. A picture of water lilies and weeping willows, 14 feet long. Monet has been struggling to finish the rest of the works. The rooms have been built and rebuilt to his desires. And now... Here's this man who says, I will pay you right now whatever you ask. And Monet says, Okay. Matsukata writes a check for $800,000, or maybe a million dollars. And when he gets the painting of the water lily pond back to Japan, a journalist asks him, How much did it cost? And he says, You know, I don't remember. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Geary. New episodes drop the first Monday of every month. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.